when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the upcoming Conservative Party conference in Birmingham and whether Whitehall is ready for Brexit. Now, I can give you a hint, the answer is no. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, political columnist Janan Ganesh, Sarah Gordon, our business editor, and James Blitz, Whitehall editor. Thank you all for joining. So let's kick off with the Conservative Party conference, which begins on Sunday. After the excitement of Labour's jamboree in Liverpool, it's now the party of government's turn to meet, discuss and debate the future of what's going to happen in British politics. It's also Theresa May's first conference as Prime Minister, and she faces numerous policy challenges herself, not least getting her party on side over Brexit and explaining her new stance on grammar schools, amongst other things. So George Parker, Labour's event was a little bit flat last week, I think we'd say. Do you think there's going to be more fizz and excitement from the Tories? Well, being at the Labour conference in Liverpool reminded me a bit of attending National Union of Students conferences back in the 1980s, quite detached from the real world and rather preoccupied with the internal machinations of the party. Yeah, I mean, I think the Tory party conference will be much more interesting, apart from the obvious fact that they're a party of government. It's an intriguing moment because Theresa May has been Prime Minister now for almost three months, and we know remarkably little about what she intends to do, either in terms of the big Brexit discussion, but also in terms of this big theme of the conference, which I think will be building a country that works for everyone. So everyone will be listening out to her two big speeches, the first one on Sunday on Brexit, and then, of course, her keynote speech to the party on the Wednesday. Janan Ganesh, I think the thing everyone will be watching the most is what has been termed Brexit Sunday, which has been bigged up by Theresa May's team, possibly not wisely, as the moment of clarity of what Brexit's going to be. We're going to hear from Liam Fox, who will probably reiterate what he said this week about trade and joining the WTO and that sort of thing. We've got David Davis, who will probably talk about the sunlit uplands of tomorrow. Boris Johnson, who will probably make some hilarious jokes about the presence of Turkey and that sort of thing. And then Theresa May herself is going to speak and her people have said that there will be something concrete in there. Now, what do you think that might be? The obvious thing is Article 50 and when that's going to be triggered. Do you think there's actually going to be any clarity at all? Is this all just hyperbole? Well, there are two questions. One is timing of exit and the second is the substance of exit. And I imagine on the timing she'll say or at least indicate that the first half of next year will see Article 50 being triggered, if only because she has to quell the beginnings of some frustration among you some... You feel it. Yeah, I mean, some people who voted out and campaigned to leave as well. The beginnings of some frustration as to why Article 50 hasn't been triggered yet. And I think they can easily be bought off by a loose sense that give me six months from January of 2017 and it will be triggered. On the substance, I don't think she'll go into detail, but what she will probably say is that when she says Brexit means Brexit, what it ultimately means is restoration of control over immigration. And therefore, whatever deal emerges from the negotiations has to involve, if not the total end of free movement, then what she calls getting some control over 
free movement. Well, she won't spell out, well, I'll happily leave the single market. But the implication is, in order to get that kind of control, you will have to leave the single market. I heard of an interesting conversation, George, that took place between David Davis and Theresa May when they were discussing Brexit and the role and what have you. And Theresa May had said to David Davis, if you had to choose between controls on migration and access to the single market, which would it be? And without a blink, David Davis obviously said controls on migration. Mm-hmm. And Theresa said, well, that's the right answer. So I think that sort of <laughs> chimes in with what Janan says about immigration controls being the focus of mm. the substance of what well, Theresa was I mean, saying. this is a Conservative Party conference. And you would expect when she's addressing the Conservative Party that immigration will be a significant part of her speech on Sunday. And it may be that she's in a position to give an outline of what she's intending to do to control EU migration. And you've had ministers speculating openly about the idea of work permits of some sort, work visas. So that's one thing. I tend to agree with Janan. She might say something vague on the uh, timing of Article 50. But my understanding inside government is that they're still no close to working out exactly what they want to say in terms of the content of the negotiating position. If she says she's going to do it in the first half of 2017, which I think is a possibility, that actually, funnily enough, buys her a bit more time. I think it buys her about as much time as she can possibly hope from the Tory party, because theoretically it would allow her then to push the triggering of Article 50 beyond the French elections in May, I think it's May and early June. But certainly that is something that's been discussed as well. Do you really want to do this in the middle of a French election where there's a danger you've put your demands on the table and there's a resounding non from whoever it is who's the front runner for the Elysee at that point? So pushing it back to later in the first half of 2017 would make some sense, I think. But again, the question is, they need to have some sort of pre-negotiation with the European partners to have an idea of what might be within the envelope of possibility and they're still no closer to getting that sense at all. The other thing, of course, is May is an interesting time because if it's triggered after May, that means it's going to come after the 2019 uh, European elections and this puts in an awkward position of what happens to all those MPs. I'm sure it would be quite easy to say, well, we're just not going to send MPs. people are making up artificial deadlines on this. The idea that British candidates are going to be contesting the European elections in 2019, I think is fanciful. Whatever happens. I think UKIP might do quite well at that election. I think think they might if we're still in, yeah. (laughs) One thing that will also be interesting to watch, Janan, is that the Conservatives are traditionally the party of business, and there's a big business influence at the Conservative Party conference on the fringe events. Lots of lobbyists in very smart suits and ties looking very important among themselves. If there's this focus on immigration, which is likely, that is going to hit straight up against those big businesses who want as much access to the single market as possible. And that's a really difficult square for the government to figure out. It is. And I would say that it goes even beyond immigration to Theresa May's own approach to policy and politics. You could argue that she's the least instinctively pro-business prime minister we've had since even James Callaghan. Because Gordon Brown, a lot of businesses found him frustrating, but simply by virtue of being shadow chancellor for as long as he was and then chancellor for a decade, he had to engage with business, placate their concerns. He went on the famous rubber chicken circuit in the city in the 1990s. Theresa May has never done a business-facing job in politics. Her instincts tend to be quite home office instincts. And that means on questions like immigration, on questions like how much do you value full membership of the internal market, on all questions to do with regulation and taxation, I'm not sure she is as instinctively pro-business as the prime ministers we're used to. And the big picture conclusion is that if she is presented with a deal of EU exit, which does damage us competitively, but gives us a lot of things that the Home Office likes, like control over things like borders. I can imagine her signing up to it in a way I could not imagine. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, John Major, even Margaret Thatcher, famous Eurosceptic, signing up to it. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I think also the other thing, we're talking about immigration there as being an issue that business cares a lot about. Another big part of her agenda, which I think we'll hear a bit more about at this conference, is the idea of corporate responsibility, bearing down on excessive executive pay, putting workers on boards, binding shareholder votes and all the rest of it. Now, I think... You're right that Tory conferences are packed full of business people, but I think four years out from a probable general election in 2020, it's a time when she can afford to take a few risks with business. And I think her political instincts will be to push hard ahead to the vacant ground that's been left by the Labour Party fighting amongst itself and also by UKIP, which now has a leadership vacuum. And I think actually pursuing a few policies which appeal to Labour voters, all the sort of employment rights and all that sort of stuff, and grammar schools, which appeals straight out of the UKIP manifesto, I think that's her priority at the moment. I think Conservative Party is actually going to be pretty united and it's going to be a very different conference because first of all they've had 50,000 new members since the referendum and it's obviously not in the scale of the Labour Party's massive growth but that's still pretty substantial and pushes the party towards 200,000 and Conservative HQ have said that this is going to be the biggest party conference in a decade and I think it really will show that the Conservative Party is the party of Brexit now. There's not going to be that many reluctant Romaniacs or whatever phrase you want to use about them there. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I actually see the Tories under Theresa May, if she's there for a long time, and it looks like she could be there for a decade, becoming more like a European Christian Democrat style party. In other words, a bit more critical of markets and individual freedom, a bit more open to a big state and forced to choose between a bit more economic dynamism or a bit more social stability, the kind of party that would choose social stability. And that's a massive change in this country's political history because it's been a de facto small L liberal party in most senses, especially in its attitude to the market, for all of my lifetime. And what we're seeing, if it does become more like an Angela Merkel CDU type party, is the Tories going back really half a century to the mid-20th century and Macmillan and Alec Douglas Hume and becoming really quite a conservative party in the proper sense rather than a pro-market party. There's a sense though, George, that maybe that's what people want now based on the Brexit vote and all the concerns that funneled through that and think we'll certainly hear less about austerity at this conference mm. than we have in the past. And I think Philip Hammond is going to be a very different Chancellor to uh, George Osborne. This is his first real big speech as well on the economy and I'm sure it'll be quite vague until the autumn statement comes later in the year. I'm sure that's true. And I agree with Jinan that she's identified the Brexit vote as being a defining moment of British politics, where politicians and business leaders should be getting it, that there is a social fracture in society. People feel excluded by globalisation. Something has to be done about it. Where I think I would possibly differ with Jinan is, is she going to have the policies to deliver the social change she's talking about? I mean, it's very well talking about putting workers on boards and having binding shareholder votes and doing some infrastructure stuff. But the really heavy lifting on social justice is probably about having a more redistributive tax system, for example, or doing something about the triple lock in pensions. So you tackle the question of intergenerational unfairness. Those are big things, which I think will be much harder for her to push past the uh, Tory party and the party membership. I completely agree. I think mainly politicians of the left, but some on the right, have been skirting around this issue of reviving corporatism and civilising free market capitalism in this country. And it goes back to the Will Hutton book in the mid-90s, The State We're In. And they always fall at the point of coming up with a policy in the first place, never mind selling it to their own party or to voters. And so you had, I think, in the mid-90s, the idea of a Japanese-style national investment bank, which would direct investment to deal with the city's short-termism. And now we're down into really fiddly stuff like, do you have a worker on your corporate board or not? And the aim is to emulate Japan and Germany. But these are countries that have corporatism and government co-management of the economy absolutely ingrained into their history and their culture. And you don't replicate that stuff overnight. So I think it's incredibly easy to 
frankly, write columns, as some people do, about now it's time to flick the switch and pull the lever and just have another model of capitalism. And it's incredibly easy as a politician to give speeches about it. But evolving the policies, then selling it to what is still a fairly free market parliamentary party is another matter. And I think that's where, if she does fall down, she will fall down. Think back to Margaret Thatcher on the steps of Downing Street in 79, quoting St Francis of Assisi. You see sometimes there's a gap between the rhetoric and delivery when it comes to conservative politicians. One thing that's inevitably going to come out of this conference, though, George, is general election talk again, that if it's a successful conference, and it probably will be in the sense that I'm sure she'll tick the sort of base level of boxes, it will be professional and it will be probably listening to the agenda in the way the Labour conference wasn't. And there will be even more pressure from people to say, well, you've got a good conference, you've got your party behind you, you should call an election. Do you think there's any movement on that at all from Downing Street? No, I think is the answer to that. It does remind me a bit of the first party conference I covered after coming back as political editor in 2007 and, of course, the discussion about whether Gordon Brown should have a snap election. So that will be in the air. But I think there's an awful lot of wishful thinking among the Labour Party here about having an early election. Jeremy Corbyn hopes that by talking about it, it's a way of instilling discipline in his party and on the Labour right. They dream of an early election as a way of getting rid of Jeremy Corbyn after the inevitable humiliation, as Peter Mandelson, yeah, exactly, pointed out. I think there are some things. She has a poll lead. She's popular. Normally it would make sense. But on the other hand, she's got four years ahead of her. As Janelle was alluding to earlier, she can look forward to winning the next election in 2020. So she has a decade of power ahead of her. Why cut and run now, one year in? There are boundary changes which kick in in 2018, which helped the Conservative Party win. Lots of Conservative MPs don't want to fight another election. And just a little straw in the wind, a number of council by-elections showing the Liberal Democrats picking up some support in some Conservative areas. Again, another reason for them not to actually take a chance with the electorate. It does look like there's very little chance of her going to the country before 2020. I still find that astounding. It must be the greatest act of magnanimity on a Prime Minister's part to say no to what is almost guaranteed to be a big majority if she holds an election anytime soon. It's true that there's no way she'll be deposed before 2020, so she can arguably afford to relax in that sense. But a year from now, two years from now, when the Article 50 negotiations are proving to be very difficult and some people are getting cold feet or the economy tips into just a normal cyclical recession, never mind anything to do with Brexit, and she begins to lose a few votes here and there and it becomes obvious that a 12-seat parliamentary majority or 16 seats, depending how you measure it, isn't very much at all. And you bear in mind she hasn't got a mandate even as a leadership election victor within the Tory party because it ended up being a semi-coronation. All of that stuff does add up to a rough ride for a prime minister. And in that instance, you want to be able to say, yeah, but I've won this election and I've got this mandate. That's a good way of repelling criticism. And to turn down the opportunity to have that, I think is A, magnanimous and B, risky. Well, I mean, very quickly, I agree with Janan on some of that. And I think breaking a promise not to hold an early election is the easiest promise to break in politics. Because what are people going to say? You promised us you wouldn't consult us in a general election. Now you're consulting us. So it's an easy promise to break. I don't think we should discount the idea of an early election. But I'd say, from my point of view, from the balance of probability, it's less likely than, than more likely. And now let's return to Brexit and the Mandarings. Leaving the EU is undoubtedly the greatest challenge facing Britain's civil service in a generation. And there's been building concern that it's simply not ready for this. The FT has been reporting this week about the confusion and uncertainty that still surrounds the process of Brexit and how exactly it's going to happen. The shake-up of the new government, two new departments, lots of new ministers left a lot of people in and outside of Westminster scratching their heads. 
So James Bliss, let's begin with Degsuse. This is the Department for Exiting the EU, which is headed up by David Davis. Is it in any way ready for the triggering of Article 50, which we're broadly expecting to happen early in 2017? At this moment, it isn't. That is certainly the case. I don't think anybody is seriously expecting Article 50 notification to happen before January, very likely to be in the first quarter of next year. Remember that when Article 50 is invoked and this two-year process begins, the British government has to send a letter to the EU setting out what its negotiating position is. And the role of DEXU under David Davis is to coordinate all the thinking that's happening across Whitehall departments as to what that position should be. Now, in some cases, for example, uh, DEFRA, the Ministry for Agriculture, effectively, and Fisheries, there are enormous issues that have to be looked at. Something like 85% of all the work that that department does is based on EU law. The common agricultural C- common policy. agricultural sort of policy, stuff. the impact of not having European migrants working in the fields, the question of selling British food to Europe, how that would be done if we left the customs union. There are huge issues. That's one example. Another example, if we left the customs union, the UK would have to employ hundreds, if not thousands, more customs officers. We have a very small number of customs officers in the UK compared to France. We have 5,000. France has 16,000. And so we would have to employ enormous numbers. So a lot of this preparatory work is being done by all these departments, and it's being sent up very gradually to the Cabinet Committee on Brexit, chaired by Mrs May, which will crunch through all the decisions. That's roughly where things stand. So Sarah Gordon, we know that the civil service wasn't ready for Brexit in any way, and a lot of this preparatory work is being done as quickly and rapidly as possible. And this has involved hiring a lot of people from the city at very expensive rates, and the government has been criticised for that. Has it got the people it needs there, the experts on trade and policy, who are able to figure this out? Well, I'm not sure that it's yet done an enormous amount of hiring in the private sector. One of the interesting issues is that it was reported that a lot of civil servants would be unwilling to work on the Brexit process. And although it is difficult to find a definitive answer to that, that does not appear to be the case. At Dexhue, they have staffed up so far to 200 people, all internal so far and for the relatively senior jobs and I was told that for example for the 20 lowest ranking senior jobs that they were recruiting for they received over 250 applications internally so in fact there does seem to be a certain appetite for working on what after all is the biggest issue of our time if you're in Whitehall but they are now about to embark on a external recruiting drive from the private sector to double up those numbers at Dexu to 400. Now We believe that those are mainly for junior ranks, not so much the senior negotiating positions, although it is true that, as we reported extensively before the referendum, the UK enormously lacks capacity and experience now in trade negotiations. So that is obviously a challenge. I bumped into a former civil servant recently, James, who worked at the Department of Health. He told me he was working at the new department. And he said, yes, a lot of the civil service is pro-EU and sees it as a negative thing to have Dexu on their CV. But in his view, this is the greatest challenge of a generation and there's huge opportunities here to build, make something. Do you think Sarah's right in the sense that it's not all as anti Brexit as sometimes we're led to believe? Yes, I think she is right. There was this assumption when the June the 23rd referendum happened that 
lots of people in the, the civil service who are instinctively pro-EU, and I think the vast majority would probably have voted for Remain, uh, were going to find themselves very disaffected. But I think she's absolutely correct. There has been an enormous rush of existing civil servants to fill those jobs. You've got to remember, however, that we are only at the start of the process. What we're talking about at the moment is that the two new departments, DEXU and the Department for International Trade, led by Liam Fox, have recruited around 500 people from across the civil service into those departments. They're going to have to recruit some from the private sector as well, as Sarah has reported. It's going to cost around £65 million. But that's only the start of the process. Further down the road, as we get into negotiating bilateral trade deals, or trying to with Australia, New Zealand, the US, Canada, and so on, we're going to have to hire vastly more people considerably more expensive who are trade negotiators and there will be all sorts of other people legal experts and so on who will need to look at all the legal untangling that will be needed with the eu so this is going to be an expensive business there is going to be a significant amount of expense on the bureaucratic side in making brexit work and i think that whilst an enormous amount of preparatory work as you say clearly is going on and i think they're moving in fact incredibly swiftly for government (laughs) This is very much a work in progress and what you have is a lot of the normal, still the normal activity of government really being very jammed up. I was talking to someone this morning who was saying that really essentially the machinery of government has seized up. You know, you've got ministries which are dealing with, in some cases like the business department, dealing with their third minister in 18 months. And this person was saying, you know, really the normal channels of how you get things done are not working at the moment. Why? Number one, because Brexit is the big issue and everybody, as we've been saying, is scrambling to get the resources in place to start dealing with it. And secondly, of course, you've just had enormous changes, not just in ministries, the creation of two new departments and all the ministerial changes that that has brought with it. One thing that I've picked up on, Sarah, is that a lot of businesses are slightly concerned about where to go to because in terms of interacting with government, as you said, you've got the department leaving the EU, you've got the International Trade Department and you've got the business department, and you've got Downing Streets, and I've heard reports that people are having to go in to see each of these separate ministries, and there's not a single touch point for the city to talk to Whitehall about how Brexit is going to work. Is that unusual, or is that problematic, do you think? Yes, we've read reports in our paper that it's problematic. The issue is that there is a lot of goodwill in the business community and, of course, concern. I mean, they want to be able to lobby the right department, the right ministers for their particular sector. Now, the point is, so far, it is not clear what the lines of communication between business and government are, or indeed whether there are actually any plans to formalise lines of communication on Brexit. At the moment, Dexu is saying each sector must talk to its own minister. If you're a manufacturer, you talk to the Department for Business. If you are financial services, you talk to the Treasury. But this, in fact, gets to the core of the problem because the fear is among non-financial services companies that the access that the banks, for example, have to the Treasury, which is, after all, still the most important and influential department, the sort of preferential access they have will mean that they get a better deal in the Brexit negotiations. It's also the case that what Theresa May and the Cabinet Office office's role in terms of liaising with business will be is also unclear. She has disbanded the business advisory group that was the group of 20 or so business people which was used as a sounding board by David Cameron and various consecutive business secretaries to bounce ideas off to discuss policy before it was implemented whether or not Dexhue will create a version of that as a way to channel businesses views is unclear. 
It's not just the complications of Brexit, though, is it, James? Also, Mrs May operation, that when she was in the Home Office, she was very well known for centralising decision-making in her office and her special advisers were very much in control of that department. And as predicted, she's taken that same style of governance into Downing Street. And there's a lot of civil servants and ministers and MPs who simply say this is not a sustainable way of government to filter every single government decision through a handful of people. Yes, that is a concern. If I'm honest, I've heard two completely different explanations of the way Mrs May is operating, and I'm trying to work out which one is right. On the one hand, at the senior civil service level, there is a very strong emphasis on the fact that she has set up three cabinet committees, which is where a lot of the work has been crunched down and brokered. So she's got the cabinet committee on Brexit, the cabinet committee on industrial policy, which is going to be very important as she tries to forge one, was important on Hinkley Point, and the cabinet committee on social policy, which is looking at issues like grammar schools, for instance. And that is alongside the National Security Council set up by David Cameron. So what's been said to me is she's actually set up a very proper way of managing things at the centre, which a lot of people like. On the other hand, there are also people that say, actually, she's already getting pretty fed up with these cabinet committees. There's an awful lot of grandstanding that goes on in the Brexit one by the three Brexiters. You shock me with news (laughs) of that. And, And what's actually more important is one, her advisors, as has been established, but two, and more importantly, and this is critical, the relationship with Philip Hammond. I mean, Philip Hammond is regarded by some people as the number two figure in government. He's actually absolutely critical in his relationship with Mrs May in working out what the direction will be. Now, which way it goes, I don't know. And there are weaknesses for Philip Hammond as well. There are weaknesses on the Treasury side. One of the big weaknesses is that the Treasury, for the first time in 15 years, does not have a senior figure inside the number 10 machine advising Mrs May. That's the first time since Tony Blair. And that is something that's concerning the Treasury. But how that's all working out in the wash, I don't know. The crunch point hasn't happened. And we will find out in the next few weeks and months whether, on the one hand, it's the May-Hammond relationship that's decisive, or whether the battle is happening within the Brexit committee. And just finally then, Sarah, this expectation is that Article 50 is going to be triggered in early 2017 sometime. That's the assumption from Whitehall. Is that the assumption for business as well? And do they feel that by the time we get to that point, the government will be in a position to actually conduct these negotiations? Or is there still too much uncertainty? I think business simply wants a swift move to an end to uncertainty. And as we've talked about before, What business dislikes most of all is uncertainty. If they have a new trading relationship with the EU, fine, they will get on and deal with it. But the quicker that relationship is defined, the better. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our World Weekly podcast, which is presented by me, Gideon Rachman, the FT's chief foreign policy commentator. Each week I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts, and you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from Wednesdays. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. I'm Ed Palmer, and I'm the host of We Are Jet, a podcast that takes a look inside the global food delivery and tech business, JustEatTakeaway.com. I talk with leaders from across the business to share the lessons that they've absorbed in this time of remarkable growth and change and bring you Jet's unique perspective on leadership, career growth, and change management, and consider how these lessons can be applied no matter what your career. We Are Jet, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Friday listeners. Thank goodness it's Friday, right? The day we've been waiting for. Finally, it's the end of the working week, and two glorious days of weekend stretch out ahead of us. Hashtag Friday! You're right, it's not Friday. Things just don't feel right when they're in the wrong space. That's why we're helping businesses find the right space with 60 London locations, your own office, and flexible contracts. Space matters. Workspace.